Our scripture reading tonight comes from the book of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is the word of the Lord. On the Wednesday night before Yom Kippur, hundreds of Jewish pilgrims made their way to a modest cemetery in Queens. This has happened every year since 1994. And they come to visit the grave of Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the seventh grand rabbi of the Lubavitcher group of Hasidic Jews. Uh, A devout and godly man, evidently, uh, his followers believe that he has special favor with God. Today, 30,000 pilgrims have made the journey to his grave. There are uh, two mikvahs, or baptismal fonts, set up near the grave. Most of the pilgrims will bathe there before uh, going into a, a room where there's a large picture of the white-bearded rabbi. Uh, they will sit down before the rabbi and uh, write out prayer requests who they give to uh, another rabbi who takes them and sets them on the grave. Uh, later in the evening, uh, prayer requests that have been emailed or faxed or phoned in are also set on the grave. And during the high holy days of September, uh, many pilgrims stay overnight in the cemetery because they believe that the rabbi's uh, gravesite is holy ground. I read that story uh, last week, and, and a story of, of people who love the God of Israel, uh, eagerly seeking access to him through a godly and devout rabbi, and and so desiring connection with him that they would travel many miles and spend all night near his grave. And and I wondered, perhaps something, some longing like that was present in the heart of God's Jews in the first century as well. I mean, they they had a legacy of fierce devotion to the one God of Israel. Uh, But they also knew that the prophet said a Messiah would one day Come and, and they were aware of some of the scriptures that hinted that God would provide a new way to know Him uh, in the Spirit. There were a lot of Messianic ideas floating around Palestine in the first century. To be sure, nobody was uh, advocating a doctrine of the Trinity in the first century. This belief we've been considering that the God of Israel lives in a divine community of eternal love shared among three unique persons. No one would have said that in the first century before Christ. But what we do know from the New Testament is that the early Christians fairly quickly became convinced that this young rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, was not only a holy man, but in fact divine. Now we know this for a number of reasons. There are a number of scriptures that just simply say in the New Testament that Jesus is God. And Jen just read John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
and the Word was God. John 1.18 No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. John 20, verse 28 Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Romans 9.5 Paul says that Jesus comes from their race according to the flesh, the Christ who is God over all. Titus 2.13 Christians are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.8 But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 2 Peter 1, verse 1 To those who have obtained a faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So one of the things that's pretty clear to us is that the early believers, even though they were committed to the worship of the one God of Israel, also worshipped Jesus Christ as the divine Lord. We know this as well because they called him Lord. Uh, Now sometimes that Greek word kurios, it could mean in the New Testament a term of respect. But many times it referred to the creator of the universe, the omnipotent God, the Lord of life. Uh, The shepherds at Bethlehem say, For to you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. John the Baptist preaches, Prepare the way of the Lord. Now he's quoting Isaiah 40 verse 3, which speaks about the Lord God coming among his people. The author of the Hebrew, letter of the Hebrews, he prays to Christ, You, Lord, founded the earth. And of course, Revelation 19.16, Jesus returns to reign on earth, and we read on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name inscribed, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So, I think it's reasonable for a, a thinking person to say, you know, I don't believe Jesus is God. It, it's silly for a thinking person to say, There's no evidence that the early Christians thought Jesus was God. There's clear evidence that they did. Now, if Jesus were not God, if he were a a rabbi like like the Reb that's visited in the Holy Days in, in the Queens, he would have rejected their worship as blasphemy. But he does exactly the opposite. In John 8, Jesus says that he's seen Abraham. And his interrogators ask him, how could you have seen Abraham? You're not 50 yet. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Now that was a strange way in the Greek to answer the question. And and, uh, the Jewish leaders immediately knew what he was saying. He was quoting Exodus 3.14, where God identified himself to Moses as I am. Jesus was creating or claiming the title I am for himself. The same title that God of Israel had used to designate himself as the eternal existing one. And how do they respond? They pick up stones to stone him. Why? Because he had claimed to be God. So not only do the early disciples worship Christ as God, Christ claims to be God, which led C.S. Lewis to say in, in Mere Christianity, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, 
on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. So one of the things that we're trying to do this fall is construct the doctrine of the Trinity, and it's hard work. Uh, And we're putting it together piece by piece. And and so what we've got so far is uh, the first week we looked at Old Testament hints that God existed in community. The second week we looked at the early believers worshiping the one God of Israel. They were Jews. They were monotheists. This week, we see that they also worshipped the divine Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not all, and this is, this is why the puzzle gets a little harder to solve. They not only believe that Jesus is God, they believe that he is a distinct person, distinct from God the Father. In the Old Testament, God is mentioned. the God of Israel is mentioned as a father a number of times, not many. But in the New Testament, that becomes his primary designation as he relates to Jesus as the Son of God. Now, we've already looked at John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So do you see that? That's very important. Jesus is God. Jesus has a distinct personality separate from God. John 16, 7, Jesus prays or says, It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now we'll look at the Spirit next week, but again, Jesus the Son has just said he's come from the Father and that he's going to send the Spirit. So you've got distinct persons in the divine community. Now, let me add one more piece to it, and we'll try to step back. What this means is, each member of the divine community has a unique role to play in God's great project of redeeming the world. Every member of the divine community has a distinct role to play. They're all equal, but they all fulfill different functions in God's great plan of saving the world. And we could look at many texts. Let me just give you one. Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So God the Father sends the Son. God the Son redeems us. God the Spirit applies the Son's redemption to our hearts. So Jesus has the unique role of opening the divine community to us and through his death on the cross making it possible that we can join the divine community. Now, these things are hard to explain. 
Um, I, I'm going to share a couple of quotes with you. Uh, I think I may, I may have made them too long, um, but we'll read them anyway. And if you'd like me to email them, I, I can. Um, let's go with the first one. The father sent not simply a representative, but his own son into the dysfunction of the world so that he might gather that world into the bliss of the divine life. God's heart breaks open to include even the worst and most hopeless among us. In so many spiritual traditions, the emphasis is placed on the human quest for God, but this is reversed in Christianity. God, like the hound of heaven in Francis Thompson's poem, comes relentlessly searching after us. Because of this questing and self-emptying love, we become friends of God, shares in the communion of the Trinity. That is the essence of Christianity. Everything else is commentary. You know, a friend asked me recently, he said, you know, is this, how central is this? Do I have to believe this to be a Christian? And, and, and essentially what I, what, I, what I said is, it's, it's the whole deal. <laughs> it, it's the whole story of salvation is bound up in the doctrine of Trinity. It's, it's not really an option. Uh, the next quote puts it like this. The doctrine of the Trinity gives expression to the fact that God has opened himself up to us. He has established an intimate two-way relation between himself and us, making himself accessible to us and giving us entry into the fellowship of God's life. God draws near to us in such a way as to draw us near to himself within the circle of his knowing of himself. Now, I know that's rather vague language, but let me read that last line again. God draws near to us in such a way as to draw us near to himself within the circle of his knowing of himself. Now, this is something we have to understand when we think about the Trinity. The whole purpose of the Trinity is uh, to help us understand how it is that God draws us into his life. Henry Nouwen wrote a wonderful little book on the Trinity, and he, he was reflecting on the great icon that we have on the opening slide. And after hours of reflecting on it, he described God as the house of love. He said he saw uh, the Godhead as the house of love. And so what's so critical about understanding the Trinity is that the three members of the Trinity work together to, to open themselves up to make it possible that you could join the house of love and become a part of the house of love. And that's one of the reasons we called this series Dancing with the Trinity, because this is not just, okay, I understand that better now. This is because you've been invited to participate in the life of the Trinity, which is what this final quote says. Uh, The 13th century Christian philosopher John Dun Scotus came to the conclusion that we who've been redeemed by Jesus Christ can only be called co-lovers with the Trinity. Get this, I was brought into being and you were brought into being by the Trinity to be a co-lover within the Trinity. I was bought by the blood of Jesus Christ and you were bought by the blood of Jesus Christ to become a co-lover with him and his Father and his Spirit. And here's the gospel. The God who is love draws near to me, mere mortal, to draw me near to himself in order to draw me within the circle of lover, beloved, and love itself. And again, I know that's a lot. If you'd like those, I can send them to you. 
I, I think what's dawning on me as I'm reflecting on this, and I know with some of you, is, is that if you really start to grasp the Trinity and how the members of the Trinity work together for our salvation to draw us into the house of love, you begin to move past a rather uh, legal, stale understanding of salvation, which is God's the judge, I'm a sinner, sent Jesus, died, uh, fixed my problem, sent the Spirit, now I can get along till I go to heaven. What we're saying is God the Father sent the Son, applied the Spirit to draw us into the Trinitarian dance to become a co-lover with the other members of the Trinity. So it's a, it's a much more profound way to think about salvation. So, here's what we've learned so far. Uh, the early Christians worshipped the one God of Israel. They also worshipped Jesus as Lord. They believed that both God and Father and God the Son were divine but they were also both distinct persons with distinct roles in the project of redemption. Now, I think you've seen enough verses to to see that the the New Testament teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. There's not not a book of First Trinity anywhere, but it's it's clear that the Father, Son, and the Spirit working together for salvation are scattered all over the New Testament. But they did not have time to develop the doctrine. And so... The, the early church theologians set to work on that. And they really started to tackle this about the 2nd and the 3rd century. Uh, it came to a head in the 4th century at the Council of Nicaea, which is where we get the Nicene Creed. And, and this was not easy work. You know, obviously, long before the Internet, long before the printing press, long before travel of any kind. Uh, and, and so you've got people preaching sermons and passing them around. You've got letters going out on ships. Uh, occasionally you have uh, councils being called. And essentially what they start out trying to tackle is this big question of, okay, how can it be that Jesus as God relates to the Father as God? How could that possibly be and how do we describe it? That was the big task of the 2nd and early 3rd century. And along the way, they debated a number of options and eventually the church rejected two errors as incompatible with the teaching of Scripture. Um, The first error, first Trinitarian error, is called subordinationism. And what that means, it it taught that Jesus was not equal to the Father, that in some way Jesus was not as fully divine as the Father. Uh, He was subordinate in a a sense of, uh, of value. And there were different ways this was taught, um, Some argued that Jesus was the first and greatest created being, but not God. Others uh, said that Jesus was a man on whom God conferred supernatural powers. And and you remember, these guys aren't in black hats trying to destroy the church. They're devout theologians, for the most part, who are Jews, and they're trying to preserve this beautiful doctrine of the one God of Israel. And so they're saying, you know, if, if we really believe in the one God of Israel, Jesus can't really be like him. Well, the church rejects that because of all the texts we read about 10 minutes ago in which the early church says that Jesus is God. And you see uh, this error pop up again in um, Jehovah's Witnesses, in Mormonism. Uh, Islam would uh, would hold a subordinate view of, of Christ as well. Now, the second error is called modalism. 
and some teachers taught that God was not really three distinct persons, but only one person who appears in three different modes at different times. Uh, one modalist teacher put it like this. He said, there's just one God. He appears as the Father in the Old Testament, as the Son in the Gospels, and as the Spirit in the Epistles. And you might think, well, who cares? This is, this is crossing, uh, or, or, it's not important. Well, it is important because if you do away with the persons of the Trinity, you do away with the person of the Son coming to die for us, and you do away with the essence of the Christian belief that God is love, because God is love because there are three persons in the community. (laughs) He wouldn't fully be love if he were solitary and alone. It's hard to love in a cave. The reason why 1 John 4, 7 says God is love is because God exists in community. You take away the person's you take away the community. And that view was rejected as well. Um, before we go to a little application, I, I just wanted to take a pass at how the church has thought about error in discerning doctrinal truth. Um, numerous scriptures warn the church to guard against doctrinal error uh, the, the early church called these errors heresies. And the leaders of the early church would take the scripture, they would come together, it was typically bishops that would do this, but some scholars as well. They'd debate doctrine, they'd discern what the scripture meant, they would reject views that they felt the scriptures didn't support, and they would embrace certain statements of truth and put them into creeds. And all this was built on a belief that Jesus was God and that the promise he made in John 14 to 17 to send the Spirit to guide the church into all truth was being fulfilled in the councils. Now, in 1934, a German scholar named Walter Bauer wrote a book called Orthodoxy and Heresy in Early Christianity. And he argued that the Roman church, when it came to power, used its power to silence opposing views. And so Bauer said that there really was no orthodox view in the early church. Rather, there were just many competing views of who Jesus was and what he'd done. And the only reason why beliefs like the deity of Jesus or the Trinity became accepted was because winners write history and Rome was the winner. Now, that is the accepted view in the academy Today, if you've ever taken a religious studies course at the university, uh, if you go into the Barnes & Noble religion section and read almost anything about the New Testament, uh, this will be the view that you'll get. Bart Ehrman uh, has made a lot of money restating this view. Uh, this is the view you find in Dan Brown's books. This is why people are always talking about the lost gospels, the apocryphal gospels. There's this idea that, oh, there's some hidden truth out there in the Gospel of Thomas that the church is suppressed. Let's go find it and find the real truth. That's a, it's a very popular view about these things today. So how do we respond to that? Well, first of all, uh, there are serious problems with, with Bauer's uh, thesis because, as we've seen, if you take the New Testament documents as even remotely reliable, they were all written by the end of the first century, and they all say that Jesus is God. So the idea, as uh, the professor says in Da Vinci Code, that this was all a conspiracy and no one believed that Jesus was God until the early 4th century is, is, is ludicrous. 
uh, we have documents that point out that the early Christians believed he was God. But, but we have to say this. Faith does come into play with this. Um, I spent uh, a couple of days in the library this summer reading a very large book called The Search for the Christian Doctrine of God. It's about 700 pages. It goes into great detail about all the debates and all the arguments that led to the doctrine of the Trinity. And it was messy. It it was as uh, front-page news in those days as football is uh, or the sequester is in ours. You would go into a bakery and the baker would sing a song. There was a song that was going around, and I don't know how it sounded, but the lines were, there was a time when the sun was not. See, that, that's, uh, that was one of the errors. That was the, one of the subordinate errors. There was a time when the sun was not. That was how they tried to communicate it. And how you responded to the song depended on whether you were for or against that particular view. So this, this was just all over the empire. This was, it's hard to believe that uh, people were that into theology at any time, but they were. They were, they were singing about the Trinity in the 4th century. Well... If you study these councils, it is not clean. There are debates. Sometimes there are armed guards. Sometimes they hit each other. Sometimes they write the meanest things about each other. And one group will come into power, win the day, send the other into exile. Then the next group will come into power, win the day, bring them back. It's messy. It's like going into the kitchen when somebody's preparing a great meal. You kind of don't want to do it. But at the end of the day, a creed emerged that all churches in all places at all times have accepted for 1,600 years. And part of being a Christian is accepting by faith that Jesus kept his promise to guide the church into all truth, uh, even through the messiness of church councils. Now, we're not done building the doctrine of the Trinity, but... But there are a couple things that have emerged tonight, and I want to see if we can pull some application from it. The first, the members of the divine community are equal. The second, each member of the divine community is a distinct person. Now, what I want to tease out here for the last few minutes is, if this is true, and if we believe God is the example of the perfect community, then we want to be like the perfect community because we're made in the image of God, right? So if in the divine community every member is of equal value, they're equally God, then it would follow that every member in our community ought to be equally valued, have an equal voice. I was teaching on on this at a retreat some time ago, and a a, a lovely little grandmother came up after I taught uh, with tears in her eyes, and she said, No one ever listens to me at supper. She came from a a large family, a loving family. She was revered and beloved in the family. And the family gathered frequently for family gatherings. And she said, I've never told anybody this. For the first time in 40 or 50 years, she said, I sit there at supper and no one asks me what I think. And I think the same thing can can happen in in a church. And so one of the things we want to ask ourselves is, is everybody equally valued? Is everyone treated equally? Is is everyone's voice valued 
Uh, are some opinions valued more than others? Are some types of people more valued than others? Um, it doesn't mean we all have the same roles. They're not the same roles in the Trinity, but it does mean that we value all the different roles of the body. Now, second application. If it's true that in the perfect heavenly community, there are distinct roles and everyone knows their role and works together to fulfill a mission, then that ought to be how we act. That we make sure everybody understands their role and has the freedom to live out that role and works together to fulfill the mission that God has has given us. Now, sometimes, see, it's really tricky to hold this balance. Sometimes churches that work very hard on being one, on unity, the way they think you get there is everybody needs to think and feel and act the same. And if you don't think and feel and act the same as me, then you're not being unified and that's wrong. And stop it. And essentially, we might say that a healthy community allows people to have clear, distinct, well-defined boundaries. John Townsend, who wrote the book Boundaries, he says, people who are not clear about their own thoughts, feelings, values, motivations, and behavior can never be sure if some sacrificial act they're performing for someone else was done freely or out of a sense of obligation, fear, or guilt. And when I read that, I thought, that's a not healthy church. If people are coming to a certain event or a certain training or a certain outreach, not because they want to, not because God's called them there, it was because they feel guilty or judged if they don't. That would be a sign that we haven't really fully embraced the different roles and callings in the community. Now, he has a list of phrases in his book of uh, the children with healthy boundaries ought to be taught to say. No. Now, we didn't have to teach ours to say that. But um, uh, I disagree. I will not. I choose not to. Stop that. It hurts. It's wrong. And that's bad. And so I, I hope that, that you feel the freedom in our church to say those words, to say, I disagree, to say, I don't want to do that. Now, the authors of Boundaries say that some of the reasons we don't feel to say those things are, are these, fear of hurting another's feelings, fear of abandonment, a wish to be totally dependent on another, fear of someone else's anger, fear of punishment, fear of being shamed, fear of being seen as bad, fear of being unspiritual. So, in a Trinitarian community, we are free to say, you know, I don't agree with that, or I'm not going to do that, without a sense of being rejected or shamed. And so, for one thing, that means, I think, we we ought to be careful of saying things, and I'm probably the one who has to be the most careful, because I say the most, is everyone ought to Or we are all going to do. We need to be very careful of that. We want to support everybody's dreams and visions and projects. But we don't want to get to the point where when I don't show up at your meeting or you don't show up at my meeting, somehow that's perceived as as me not loving you. Because sooner or later we're all going to wear out if we all have to come to everybody's meetings. Now, I think we also need to work in this Trinitarian community to help each other 
discern our unique roles, to release one another into our unique roles, to, to help us follow God's plan for our life. And then I think what health looks like is that each of us, knowing who we are, knowing what our gifts are, knowing what our role is, is in this mutually submissive dance, and we all work together to free one another up to follow the role that God has given us. That's how the Trinity functions. And so there's not a lot of ego, there's not a lot of competition, uh, there's not a lot of envy or jealousy. I'm comfortable in my role, you're comfortable in your role, we celebrate each other's roles, and together the kingdom advances. When, when I, I read that article about the pilgrimage to the rabbi's grave, you know, I really resonated with it. I really could understand the longing there. We all do want a God who's not distant and removed, a God who pursues us, a God who makes it possible to have a relationship with him, a God who has come and been among us, a God who loves us and reaches out in a real way. The only difference, really, I think, between us and our Jewish friends in that story is that His name is Jesus. Let's pray.